Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us, a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein, and today is episode 97. It's titled The Great Financial Crisis. A few weeks ago, I got an email from Matt who wrote, I am a regular listener and love your show. I have about 10 more episodes to get through before I've heard them all. I haven't seen an episode dedicated entirely to the financial crisis of 2008. I'm fascinated by this crisis, the causes, what could have happened, the potentially disastrous effects of a full meltdown could have caused, how close we came to disaster, and the bailout measures that were taken. I would love to hear both the description of the crisis in your words and your take on the crisis generally. He's correct. I've alluded to the crisis in a couple episodes, but I've not dedicated an entire episode to the crisis. It's important to understand what caused it, but it's even more important to, to see what are the lessons that we can learn from it, both in terms of investing, but also our personal lives. And, and so I'm going to walk through what caused the crisis, and I'm going to do it from the perspective. During the crisis, I was a professional money manager, and so I had endowment and foundation clients that I was advising, and I was also managing over a billion-dollar portfolio along with our, our portfolio team. I was our chief investment strategist, so I was making recommendations for portfolio changes. I was communicating those changes, communicating what was happening to our clients. And I, over the past week or two, I read the book "Too Big, Too Too Big to Fail," Too Great, yeah, Too Big to Fail by Andrew Ross Sorkin, and also reread. What I wrote during that time, just so I could remember, in fact, I even went to my iPhone to see pictures I had taken to remember where I was when, as I traveled around the country, went to New York a few times during the fall of 2008. I'm going to bring it all together here, and we're going to see what we can learn, explain what happened. This episode will probably be a little longer than a normal episode, just because I want to make sure I cover it in in the, the detail that it deserves, given the extraordinary events that occurred in that 2007 to 2009 period. The raw material for the crisis were, were home mortgages, and which, which seems odd, I guess, when you think about it. It was, it was the simple act of a borrower borrowing money to purchase a house. A mortgage is the homeowner's liability, but it's also an asset. And I've talked about that in earlier episodes. Every liability is usually somebody's asset. So in 2007 and 2008, when homeowners began to default on their mortgage liabilities in droves, investment securities, assets tied to those mortgages plummeted, spreading fear and panic throughout the financial system. The financial turmoil led to the collapse of major financial institutions and the deepest global recession since the Great Depression. So how could the relatively simple act of buying a house lead to such economic devastation? Initially, a mortgage is the asset of the bank making the loan. But for decades, U.S. banks have sold their mortgages to entities that package them with hundreds of other mortgages into bonds called mortgage-backed securities – that are owned by mutual funds, exchange-traded funds, insurance companies, pension plans, and other investors. In a mortgage bond, it's a straightforward investing. 
investment. I mean, it's a, I, I own them in my portfolio now. But leading up to the great financial crisis, financial institutions began to repackage those bonds into more risky and more esoteric investment vehicles. Mortgage-backed securities were included in special purpose entities called collateralized debt obligations, or CDOs for short. Those contained hundreds of different mortgage bonds and other type of debt, such as non-investment grade corporate bonds and bonds backed by auto loans and credit card receivables. These CDOs were highly complex and obscure, causing investors to rely on the credit ratings issued by national recognized rating agencies such as Moody's and S&P. And they were relying on these, these ratings to determine whether the CDOs were safe or not because the CDOs had so many different pieces of bonds were highly complex that that's what they depended on in terms of investors. Many CDOs were given investment-grade credit ratings, implying that they were safe, even though the CDO's performance was tied to high-risk subprime mortgages. Subprime mortgages are mortgages or were mortgages taken out by highly leveraged borrowers with poor credit, many of whom had provided little, if any, income verification. These CDOs merited or earned, I'm going to put that in quotes, their elevated credit ratings through a process called over-collateralization. And what what over-collateralization is, it's when the principal value of the underlying securities that make up the particular vehicle, the CDO, is greater than the CDO's starting principal value. For example, so when a CDO was issued, it might have a mortgage bonds with a principal value of $120 million. But the CDO would be issued at a face value of $100 million. So that extra $20 million served as a cushion to absorb losses due to mortgage defaults. And so it was over-collateralized. Some CDOs, though, had lower credit ratings because the mortgage bonds assigned to these junior Lower-rated CDOs were also assigned to more senior, higher-rated CDOs. In other words, even though junior CDOs were also over-collateralized in the same way, senior CDOs had first dibs on mortgage bond interest and principal payments, while the junior CDOs were the first to be assigned any losses due to mortgage defaults. So the bonds in these in these CDOs, could they, sometimes they were shared, sometimes they were split apart, but it was sort of this waterfall in which you needed to know that the, the highest rated securities, they, they, didn't, they weren't hit first with, with losses or defaults if a mortgage went, went under. It was the junior tranches of these CDOs. There was a huge appetite leading up to the great financial crisis for these CDO structures because the yields were attractive and, and this was a period when interest rates were relatively low across the globe. And so there was, a, there was a thirst for higher yield, particularly when you could get that yield through the apparent safety or the perceived safety of collateralized debt obligations. Global demand for investment securities tied to mortgages meant there was an increasing demand for both houses and borrowers. Many borrowers bought second and third homes with little money down with the intent of flipping them for profit. LaPrella and I knew families that did this. I recall one family 
here in the area that that was probably making $50,000 a year in terms of salary, maybe 60, and went out and bought a $500 to $700,000 second home with little money down, little income verification, and it, it did not did not end well. And th- and this was this was so if you recall that I, I you know I, I reflect back 8 years ago and I felt the same way during the internet bubble where everybody was just caught up in this hysteria and the housing bubble in many regards was just like that. And as a result, prices for both new and existing US homes began increasing at double digit annual rates by 2005. And by 2007, U.S. home prices exceeded four and a half times median household income. That was an all-time high and well above historical averages. And if you recall the episode, oh, I don't remember the, the number now. It was back in the 40s where I talked about housing and should you invest in homes, should you play off your mortgage. I gave some statistics to how do you, how do you tell whether – housing market is overvalued or not. And one is you look at how much income the typical family is paying to to purchase a home. And so in 2007, it was at an all-time high. And so as home prices got more and more frothy, the creditworthiness of the average borrower was declining, while the underwriting standards became more and more lax. And there were a lot of people at fault for this, and so I'm, I'm not going to point fingers, but certainly the credit rated the, the credit agencies in terms of these investment grade ratings they they were somewhat culpable. The, the those that wanted to flip houses and and were just buying houses to, to flip them the second or third home they, they certainly were culpable. Those those the banks and the mortgage brokers were partly responsible, but it, but there was this hysteria. And in part of the demand for the hysteria or for these houses was this desire for these high or relatively high yielding perceived safe security, collateralized debt obligations, collateralized mortgage obligations. Now, my responsibility as a money manager was to see what was going on, and we were asset allocators. So adjust the asset allocation based on what we saw developing in the economy and the market. And our clients had investment policy statements. They had a long-term strategic target allocation, but there was a range within that allocation that we could move, and we could increase quality, we could lower quality by the type of assets that we held. So year-end 2006, I wrote to our clients, Current economic and market debate focus on whether the decline in housing prices will lead to a general economic slowdown or if the fall in oil prices is sufficient to mitigate the negative economic impact of the slower housing activity. As part of our ongoing due diligence effort, we interview numerous equity, fixed income, and alternative investment managers and study the merits of all viewpoints. Ultimately, we believe no one can accurately know beforehand what will transpire in the short term. Consequently, we have captured significant profits in several strategies and repositioned the portfolio with a higher emphasis on quality. We believe our strategy will continue to perform well if markets continue to advance and our diversification and low volatility strategies should dampen the impact or they should dampen the impact of a recessionary environment or market decline. 
And so in that period, 2006, I knew something was going on. I didn't know the ins and outs of the collateralized debt obligation, the the CDOs, by any means. I was not going out and buying credit default swaps like a lot of hedge funds. I'm not even sure at the time I knew hedge funds were, were doing that. But I just sort of, you sort of saw, I knew the housing bubble was there. I saw something that I was starting to get nervous. We were starting to reduce or increase quality. We were reducing some of the, our smaller cap bets. We were reducing some of our emerging markets exposure, and we were capturing profits and increasing the quality of our portfolio. But we weren't going to cash. And that's something that I struggled with throughout the crisis, because when I say we were increasing quality, that means... We, we were changing the allocation to some extent on the margin, but it, it was very different than what I was doing in my own portfolio. So by the summer, kind of late 2006, summer 2007, home prices in many regions of the U.S. were falling and mortgage defaults increasing. And as the losses flowed through into these CDOs, these collateralized debt obligations tied to mortgages, it became apparent Despite the over-collateralization that these securities were way more risky than their credit ratings implied, these CDO structures that were in such high demand during the boom years were quickly deemed toxic and no one wanted to own them. Investors fretted about the exposure various financial companies had to these securities. I think the first sign that, that many investors realized that something was potentially seriously wrong was in June 2007 when two hedge funds that were invested in mortgage-backed securities and subprime debt sponsored by Bear Stearns, they collapsed. And, and that, that caused a, a great deal of volatility in the market at the time. In July 2007, I wrote, we are carefully reviewing the potential fallout from the subprime mortgage loan crisis. The last few weeks have seen a repricing of risk as credit spreads have widened, not only for high-risk bonds, but also for higher-quality issues. In addition, there is a large chunk of variable-rate mortgage market that is scheduled to reset their interest rates in the coming months at an average rate increase of two percentage points. There is a possibility higher default rates on mortgages, wider spreads on debt, and higher interest rates in general could begin to negatively impact the economy. While we are not economic forecasters, we do pay attention to how changes in the economy could impact the performance and valuations of asset categories, not only to help us avoid investment losses, but also take advantage of opportunities as they arise. So we're we're looking, we're seeing these changes, we're, we're up increasing our quality, but the reality is we don't have we don't really know how severe it's going to be at this point. Come October 2007, the Federal Reserve has started to cut short-term interest rates. Equity indices reach a record high. So you had to saw off in the summer. Then they reached that the, the high was really October in 2007. I, and I wrote, yet very little has changed in the factors that led to the original market turmoil. The supply of unsold houses is increasing. Housing prices continue to decline. The cascade of future adjustable rate mortgage resets remains imposing. The pipeline of debt commitments for unclosed private equity deals still looms large on the balance sheets of financial institutions. And the number of write-downs for some private mortgage investments gone awry appear low compared to the volume issued. 
to expect such a lengthy list of problems to be solved by a few Federal Reserve interest rate cuts seems naive. Even former, even former Federal Chairman, Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan admitted in a recent in- interview in Fortune magazine that markets, quote, get to a state of extraordinary exuberance, which, when confronted with reality, turns to unrelenting fear, huge withdrawals, extraordinarily little liquidity, and considerable credit fears. We have never had the capacity to diffuse a bubble, end quote. I go on. So as the great 21st century housing bubble bursts, the overriding question is whether the housing price declines will negatively impact consumer expenditures, which could in turn lead to a recession. And if the U.S. recession ensues, what will it be its impact on global growth rates? The challenge the Fed faces, as Dr. Greenspan has also commented, is he had, quote, the relatively easy task in lowering interest rates without concern about triggering inflation. He regrets that this is no longer the case. This is in the fall of 2007. And in a year before a lot of the, the major investment banks start to collapse. And so looking back, when we sort of look back and over this time horizon, it seemed like it all happened very quickly. But in reality, this was building up over years and the bubble that was bursting, it took a while. And in fact, by fall 2007, there was no consensus that there was a recession. In, fa- in fact, I don't believe the official recession started till January 2008. And so that's the thing. When we, when we look at, in fact, I'll have a quote here later, we're at time zero. We're at time zero today. We do not know what's going to happen tomorrow in terms of markets, in terms of the economy. All we have is hints. And, and we had hints back then. I was adjusting our client portfolios based on those hints. But in, in, it turns out we did not adjust them enough. In January 2008, I wrote, 2008 is off to a rocky start with most global equity benchmarks returns in negative territory. The average U.S. housing price declined over 5% year over year. Manufacturing activity appears to be slowing, while the U.S. employment rate recently jumped to 5%. More economists are predicting recession, with some believing the U.S. is already experiencing one. Given this as a backdrop, we believe a continued emphasis on quality is the proper course. And... At the same time, we remain vigilant for opportunities to take additional portfolio risk where the potential return more than compensates for it. One of the mistakes I'll have made nine months later, October 2008, is deciding to take a little more risk as some valuations got more attractive. But in February, January, February 2008, we were still cutting risk. In, in February 2008, we got rid of bank loans in a portfolio because spreads were widening out. We had already eliminated non-investment-grade bonds in the portfolio. In March 2008, the first major casualty of the financial crisis hit. Bear Stearns, the venerable investment bank broker-dealer, Wall Street entity collapsed. It had been founded in 1923. The Federal Reserve had to step in, orchestrate a sale to J.P. Morgan. They also backed up some of these toxic securities that... Bear Stearns had. So, because what happened is these banks, a lot of these CDO structures were sold out into the marketplace. They were sold out through the globe, but the banks held on to a large percentage of them. But that wasn't the main problem that caused the collapse of Bear Stearns. 
and later Lehman Brothers and some of the other broker-dealers. These were not commercial banks. We talked about a few episodes ago how banks create money. Banks have an advantage is that they, they can get deposits, but and, and banks today are not nearly as levered as these Wall Street banks were. They were levered 32 to 1. There was $32 of debt on their balance sheet for every dollar of equity. And the problem with that, the more important problem, that, that, that debt was funded with overnight borrowings, repo agreements. If you, re, if you listen to episode 11, I talk about repos or repurchase agreements and, and how these, this, this shadow banking system, the, which includes these Wall Street banks, were funding their balance sheet, these longer-term commitments, and which ended up to have a lot of illiquid assets, were being funded with overnight borrowings. And so what happened is the investment banks' stock prices began to fall. The asset values on their balance sheet began to deteriorate with the CDOs and other structures. And the lenders to these investment banks, these broker-dealers, wanted more collateral. They were concerned, and so the investment banks had to go out and sell some of their assets into an illiquid market, sometimes at fire sale prices, and to, in order to raise cash to put up more collateral for their overnight lending. They had a mismatch be- on their balance sheet. They, they had longer-term liabilities or, or not, not long, short-term liabilities. They had overnight liabilities that funding this highly leveraged position, yet their assets, some of them were illiquid, but it was, they were being sold into a market that didn't want it. They felt those CDO structures were toxic. The problem was compounded by a counting change and a new accounting rule that the Financial Accounting Standard Boards implemented that became effective in November 2007. It was called FAS 157. It required corporate entities, including investment banks, to value their assets on their financial statements at the current market price. And so before, it could potentially be held at cost, but it had to be done at fair value. And it had to be the clearing price. And so if the price of the assets were dropping, that's what those assets had to be valued at. And there was doubt within the investment community whether the assets, the CDO structures that these banks held were really held at or priced at the appropriate amounts. Investment banks were faced with a nightmare scenario as they rushed to sell assets to raise cash to put up more collateral so they could continue to fund their operations through debt. That pushed down the value of those same assets as they sold in the open market at fire sale prices, which in turn further weakened the investment bank's balance sheets as that meant they needed to mark down the value of the assets they continued to hold to the most recent market price. The investment bank's stock, stock prices kept falling, requiring them to sell even more assets into an illiquid market to lower their leverage. And then finally, you had clients of these investment banks that stopped trading with them. A lot of the hedge funds would trade with these, these broker-dealers, the Bear Stearns, the Lehman Brothers, the Goldman Sachs, the Morgan Stanley. They were fearful they weren't going to survive. And, and these, these venerable investment banks collapsed in a matter of weeks. When you read the, the book Too Big to Fail, you, you get a sense of, of the frustration of the executives of these banks. They didn't 
they they were they're upset. They they said it was short sellers that were driving their stock prices down, and, and that's one of the takeaways from that book. You realize a few weeks ago, or, or last week when I was in New Orleans, I I was talking to an antique dealer on Magazine Street, and he sells 17th and 18th century furniture. And we're just talking about what's going on with the world. But he was convinced that there's only four or five corporations that control the the entire world. And he's sort of a, a conspiracy theorist. But when you read Sorkin's book, you realize that no one really controls these things. That they're, they're just, they were just fighting fires. The Federal Reserve, the Treasury, Secretary Paulson, later Geithner, Bernanke were just fighting fire. They're putting band-aids. The, the executives didn't know because this thing this was just sort of cascading through the system. There was a contagion of fear and panic, and it took down Bear Stearns. In April 2008, I wrote, while on the topic of risk management, the swift demise of Bear Stearns reinforced why our investment strategy involves holding thousands of individual securities spread among multiple asset categories and managers. Peter Lynch, former portfolio manager for the, for the Fidelity Magellan Fund, made famous the investment principle, invest in what you know. The challenge with this advice is investors can only know so much due to the constraints of time Inability. Hence, portfolios based on the invest in what you know mentality tend to be more concentrated. Greater concentration increases the risk of some unknown event will torpedo a security. There were many investors with large stakes in bear turns who thought they knew the company well. What they did not know is a crisis of confidence could cause a $60 billion market cap company to collapse in a matter of of days. Bear Stearns we had in our portfolio because we owned index funds and ETFs. It was about 0.01% of the portfolio. We did not hold the security because we thought we knew it well. We held it as an ancillary outgrowth of what we do know. We know that when we buy an asset category that is undervalued and out of favor, that over the long term, there will be more positive surprises affecting the underlying securities than negative surprises. We just do not know what the surprises are and which securities they will affect. Conversely, we avoid or capture profits and subsequently underweight asset categories that appear overvalued because more of the underlying securities are priced for perfection. Increasing the risk, negative surprises will outnumber the positive. We diversify because we know there is more that we do not know than what we do know. Bubbles occur when investors become overconfident in what they think they know. The deflating of the asset bubble is teaching many a homeowner that houses can go down in value just as easily as they can go up, as evidenced by the 10.5 year-over-year decrease in national home prices. Five months later, after Bear Stearns collapsed, Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy. It was September, the early morning hours of September 15th, 2008, that entire weekend that the heads of the major investment banks did everything they could to save it. But at the end of the day, it failed. I remember that day explicitly. I was in San Diego. I had a client meeting on Tuesday. So Monday, I flew out and on the plane, 
and reading about what was going on with Lehman Brothers. I get to San Diego and I get upgraded to the presidential suite at the Westin San Diego. It's about 2,000 square foot hotel room. It has this entire floor. I had to go to the front desk and say, how do I get to my room? I can't get there. And they said, well, it has its own elevator. And so I'm up there in this room. It's got two bedrooms. It's got a, a full length conference table. It has a grand piano in it. And I'm just looking over San Diego, just just amazed at what's going on with with the financial system. And one of the themes throughout this crisis is you couldn't see it in the sense that I would travel and and it the world in terms of people driving around shopping it looked you couldn't tell that there was a huge financial crisis going on. Let me pause here to share some words from this week's sponsors. What do companies like Ring, Hint, and Tecovas all have in common? They all use NetSuite to accelerate their growth. Successful companies know that in order to grow faster, you must have the right tools. Whether you're doing a million, 10 million, or hundreds of millions in revenue, NetSuite by Oracle gives you the tools you need to accelerate your growth. With NetSuite, you get a full picture of your business, finance, inventory, HR, customers, and more. It's everything you need to grow all in one place, right from your phone or computer. NetSuite will give you the visibility and control you need to make the right decisions and grow with confidence. That's why NetSuite customers grow faster than the S&P 500. NetSuite is the world's number one cloud business system, trusted by more than 19,000 companies. It's the last system you'll ever need. Schedule your free product tour right now and receive your free guide, Seven Key Strategies to Grow Your Profits, at netsuite.com slash david. That's netsuite.com slash david, netsuite.com slash david. After Lehman collapsed, I flew to New York and I met with a number of investment managers. I was just trying to figure out what was going on. And and I talked about one of those meetings with Rick Bazina, Bazina Capital Management, in episode 26 on why stocks are falling. In October 2008, I wrote, and it gives you, this gives you a sense of what, what just how severe it was. I, I wrote, the bear market took a more ominous turn in the third quarter as plunging equity markets and a global credit freeze shook the financial system to its core. Major financial institutions such as Lehman Brothers and Washington Mutual collapsed while the U.S. government stepped in to save others. The broad U.S. equity market as measured by the Russell 3000 index fell over 8%. But that downturn was relatively tame compared to the carnage overseas. Developed markets, as measured by the MSCI EFA index, declined over 20%, while emerging markets fell 27%. This is all in one quarter, most of it in September 2008. The level of fear and pessimism in the market was extreme with measures of market volatility, such as the CBOE volatility index, VIX, hitting levels not reached in over six years. Against this backdrop, with investors fleeing risky assets in favor of U.S. Treasuries, avoiding losses was nearly impossible for equity-oriented portfolios. 
There was no shortage of events to send investors scrambling to safety. In September alone, the federal government placed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac into conservatorship. Freddie, Freddie Mae and Fannie Mac, these were quasi-government entities that, that were buying up mortgages and had for years and issuing these plain vanilla mortgage-backed securities. But they started getting involved in subprime lending. And when these subprime mortgages began to default, Ultimately, Freddie, Fannie and Freddie also had equity. They were, they were private companies with an implied backing by the government. They had stock that traded on the exchange, and their stocks also began to plummet along with other banking institutions because nobody knew how bad it was. And there was a great deal of interconnectivity. There was a great deal of credit default swaps written. These are credit default swaps are, are little side agreements between entities that say, okay, if this particular company fails, you'll pay me this much, or this particular bond fails, you'll pay me this much. But there was all these connected, and with Lehman Brothers sort of in the middle and everyone having traded with them and trying to figure out their exposure, there was a credit freeze, and there was panic. I go on, I say, so in September alone, the federal government placed Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac into conservatorship. Lehman Brothers filed for bankruptcy protection. The U.S. Treasury stepped in to save AIG with an $85 billion secure line of credit. AIG, the insurance company, was a big underwriter of a lot of these credit default swaps. And when companies and securities started going bad, AIG didn't have enough capital to absorb the losses, and and the government had to step in. Going on, Merrill Lynch was forced to sell itself to Bank of America, and Washington Mutual became the largest bank in history to be declared insolvent by the FDIC with its banking operations sold to J.P. Morgan. Fear was just as rampant in the bond market, and I give some statistics to that. I go on. While the circumstances that lead to bear markets are unique, all bear markets have similarities. First, no one knows exactly when the downturn will end. Experts can give their opinion, but day-to-day swings in the markets are completely unpredictable. Second, bear markets do, in fact, end. During the heat of the downturn, it often appears otherwise. Investors worry this time it will be different, that the problems are too great in the economy and the financial system, so overburdened that they will suffer a complete meltdown. The word depression is mentioned often in hushed tones. And there were financial luminaries that thought it was going to be a financial meltdown, that, that the fear was taking down one institution after the other. I go on to say, the house, when, when our comments are not meant to understate the severity of the present crisis. The housing bubble and its subsequent collapse were real. The credit crisis spawned by the precipitous decline in securities and derivatives tied to mortgages reels. Banks are failing. There's a crisis of confidence in our global financial system. Regulators and rating agencies, double-digit declines in investment portfolios cause distress for institutions and individuals who rely on those returns to fund expenses. Yet we have been here before. Probably not quite. I was probably a little too rosy. We've been here before. In the last two decades, investors experienced the corporate accounting scandals Enron, Worldcon, etc., the sharp equity declines following the September 11th terrorist attacks, the bursting of the dot-com bubble, the Asian financial crisis in 1997 and 98, 
the savings and loan crisis in the early 90s, and the stock market crash in 1987. The markets recovered after all these bear markets and in many instances were stronger after the excesses were reduced. With that in mind, we have two choices in positioning client portfolios. We can manage them for depression-like scenarios, believing markets have much more room to fall, which would assume that market participants are overly optimistic and current values do not reflect the real fear priced into these asset classes. Or we can take a longer-term view and position portfolios for an ultimate market recovery by allocating to asset classes that have been hit hard in the sell-off and are attractively valued, while also reducing exposure to those asset classes that are overvalued. Such rebalancing needs to occur during a period of uncertainty and volatility when fear is high. If we wait until all risk can be quantified, the market could well be well into recovery. We choose to take a longer-term view that is firmly rooted in our valuation work. The mistake I made was everything I wrote there is true. But we began allocating back into emerging markets that had fallen over 37%. We were three weeks too early. We started managing or allocating to non-investment grade bonds. And we were about three months too early. Had I, if I was going to do it again, I wouldn't have done that. Now, it's easy to look back. I didn't, we didn't really know. I mean, the things could have collapsed. In my own personal portfolio, I was in cash. I had been in cash. In, I went into cash in the early 2008 for fear of what was going on. But our, our mandate for our clients was not. You couldn't do that. You couldn't go to cash. You had these long-term allocations. And yet we began taking on more risk. And, and in, in retrospect, that just wasn't prudent. There was too much downward momentum too much potential systematic risk. This, we were in uncharted territory. I should, should never have allocated more to stocks. Again, in October 2008, I said, so why do we choose to act then instead of waiting until today or three months from now when markets are more settled? Simply put, no one can consistently time markets in the short term. When we make a portfolio change on a given day, the following day or week, the asset class could rise or fall. When our time horizon and the time horizon of our clients is in years, if not decades, we will be successful if we can shift to overweight, undervalued asset class classes during the season when things are the most undervalued. We may nev- never be able to get the day, the week, or even the month correct, although we certainly do our best to try. One way we do that is to not make dramatic changes all at once. We average into undervalued areas over time. When we meet with investment managers, they often speak in terms of catalysts for value in specific holding to be realized. A big fear money managers have is falling into a value trap, buying a security that is cheap and remains cheap for many years. A fair question is how do we know that increasing exposure to corporate bonds at all-time high spreads an emerging market that some of the lowest valuations in years is not a value trap. What are the catalysts for the spreads to narrow and for valuations to increase? When you hold a portfolio comprised of thousands of securities and invest with managers that individually hold hundreds of bonds or hundreds of stocks, the catalyst is capitalism itself and the resiliency of our free market system. The catalyst is the human tendency to shift from greed to fear 
and back to greed. We expect economic growth to return, fear to subside, and that investors will bid up the value of undervalued asset classes just as they always have. We believe this bear market will end just as all bear markets eventually end. We also believe there are more embedded positive surprises and asset classes purchased during periods of high fear than there are negative surprises. The biggest negative surprise, though, would be a complete economic collapse. What I should have done, and I do a much better job today in the subsequent years, is waiting for market internals to improve. The level of fear and greed. We were at ultimate fear right then. I should have waited until... Fear hit an extreme and then began to reverse. That occurred in March 2009. That's when I started taking on more, much more risk in my personal portfolio. We should have done that in this portfolio. But at the end, it worked out all right. The, the changes that we made in September 2008, one year later, they added a, a total of about 1.2% to our overall excess return. So they were successful. The allocation to emerging markets, they were positive, et cetera. But it, it isn't just getting the, it right in terms of the return. It's, it's the decision-making process and that we shouldn't have made the allocation. It's that simple. Two investment banks that did survive, Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, survived only by raising more capital and converting to commercial bank holding companies. That allowed them to borrow money from the Federal Reserve and, and to avoid this trying to support their balance sheet by borrowing overnight with repos. So what prevented a complete meltdown of the financial system? Two things. The U.S. government passed the Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, where they agreed that they you, the financial entities – and other corporations could sell troubled assets to these toxic CDOs to the federal government. And that, that cleaned up the balance sheets and took some of the fear or uncertainty that the market had toward these financial entities because then the government had, had, the, had the securities. And so that did it. But more importantly, the Financial Accounting Standards Board modified their rules to allow companies more flexibility in valuing their assets. Corporations could value the assets on their accounting books as if they were sold in an orderly sale rather than dumped at dis- distressed sale prices. And so that, that kept sort of the, this, this continual deterioration of balance sheets because then the banks could, could then value the securities at a reasonable price. Now, that, that certainly meant a great deal, still a lack of transparency, but it did calm investors' fears, and it kept their, a, a continual deterioration of the capital or the equity balances as assets got written down. By late 2008, early 2009, the carnage in the financial markets has spilled over into the real economic world where unemployment was skyrocketing, the GDP or output was contracting. At that time, January 2009, I took a trip down to Texas and I started filming. Specifically, I wanted to see, could you see such a deep recession? I remember seeing 
tape or video or, or pictures of the Great Depression. He had all the, these these soup lines or, or bread kitchens, and and you could see the distress on individuals. And I was just trying to find trying to find the suffering. And I, I spent some time in the San Antonio area. Then I went to West Texas into Eastern New Mexico to where one of my clients had given to soup kitchens, had given to homeless shelter in Eastern New Mexico, and they they didn't have any hardly anybody to serve. They this was sort of the oral belt, and the the collapse hadn't quite hit there yet. And I realized that the economy is so dynamic with so many pieces, you can't often see what's going on. That's why you kind of have to look at these hints at these market conditions, at the numbers. Because if you try just try to go for anecdotal evidence, you don't, you, you can't, you, you might look at the wrong thing. You kind of have to take a, a bigger picture view. The, the market's bottom, March 9th, 2009, the economy started to show improvement that spring. There was a lot of talk about whether there were green shoots or not by, by the summer of 2009. We, we, you know, our portfolios were recovering. They were getting rewarded. I had moved back into in, out of cash in my personal portfolio and taking advantage of some of the extreme valuations. But in April 2009, I wrote, it's negligent to suffer through the worst bear market in 75 years without reexamining long-held assumptions. We have certainly done our share of self-examination and second-guessing. Throughout this process, we are mindful of an investment paradox. It is always easy to look back and connect the dots as to what happened and see the investment ramifications of how the portfolio was positioned. There is only one path looking backwards in time, whereas looking forward, there are an infinite number of paths. At time zero, there are multiple routes markets can take. One risk is of looking back and seeing the perceived logical chain of events is it can lead to overconfidence about the direction of future events. We can now see the severe fallout of Lehman Brothers failing last September and the forced liquidation, deleveraging, and flight to quality that occurred as a consequence of that and had such a devastating impact on investment portfolios. The question is how many saw it beforehand? Each new day represents time zero. Our charge is to consider the multiple paths that the economy and markets could take and use our best judgment to position the portfolio to benefit from the most probable outcome while mitigating as best we can unfavorable events. And that's how I invest. I, all we have are the conditions. We have the clues. We have PMI data, the economic trend data. We have market internals. What's the level of fear and greed? And ultimately, we have valuations. And we can look at valuations and there come up with a reasonable expected return, not over the next month or, or the next year, but over a longer five to 10-year time horizon. So what can we learn from the great financial crisis? What did some of these institutions learn that we can apply to our own portfolio? One, how dangerous too much leverage is. Investment banks, broker-dealers levered 32 to 1. And, and that high leverage and the, and the high leverage of individuals that went out and bought houses by putting 2-3% down, in some cases not putting any money down. As soon as those houses started so, so selling off, they were underwater. Leverage 
can destroy you. And so it's important to be prudent in terms of when we take on debt. I don't use margin at all in investing, and I don't have any debt at all because leverage scares me. And and I'm probably overly cautious, but part of it comes from living through what happened during the great financial crisis. The second thing is the risk of having inadequate capital and, and not having a cushion, a margin of safety. And in the case of these investment banks, these financial institutions, they had a, a mismatch in terms of they had their assets were funded by a, a funding source that turned out to be very, very tenuous, overnight funding. The, the, the corollary to our own lives is do we have long-term commitments, debt, for example, that is being funded by short-term cash flows? If we don't have a margin of safety, if we don't have emergency savings in cash, are we a paycheck or two away from insolvency? Bear Stearns, Lehman Brothers, huge organizations with close to 100 years of history taken down in a matter of weeks because they had inadequate capital. They were too risky in terms of leverage, and there was a mismatch between their long-term commitments and their source of funding. The final takeaway is diversification doesn't, only, doesn't always work. I rode in 2008 or early 2009. Simply put, this was a year when diversification failed. Global asset class correlation converged toward ones and market volatility jumped to all-time highs as macroeconomic fears swamped security-specific issues. I went on and I said, client investment policy statements, so this is their long-term strategic document, are the foundation of our portfolio management decisions. For most of our clients, these policy statements outline strategic investment objectives that are longer-term in nature with higher target weights and equities compared to bonds. The increased strategic allocations to equity are necessary to support their spending objectives. So most of these endowment foundations had a 4 or 5% draw, and so they had to be barely high in equity and other risky asset classes. I go on. A well-known investment tenant is higher return objectives necessitate a willingness to accept increased portfolio volatility, generally by increasing exposure to growth-oriented asset classes such as stocks. What is not as appreciated is the risk-reward trade-off is not a one-to-one relationship for diversified portfolios. In other words, expected portfolio risk increases faster than the pickup in expected return as performance objectives increase. What this means from a practical standpoint is there's a greater likelihood for extreme positive and negative return surprises for portfolios with higher performance objectives, the so-called fat tail risk. It is much easier to avoid large portfolio losses for a portfolio with a 5% return objective than one with 8%. That 3 percentage point shift in expected return encompasses significantly more fat tail risk. And that's something people don't realize. And that's what, you know, when I look at my retirement portfolio where I'm, I'm highly dependent on that nest egg for my day-to-day living, I can't afford to shoot for a 7 to 8% return because the likelihood of a negative surprise is much greater 
the farther up, the farther out I go into the risk spectrum. Now, the likelihood of a positive surprise is also great, but I'm much more worried about the downside. And so I've ratcheted down my risk and, and shoot for closer to 5%. Now, many of you are, 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 are younger and have many years to retire. You can afford to take higher risk because you have a longer time frame to recover and your asset balances are small. And so if you lose 30 to 40%, it's not going to be economically devastating. So that's what we learn from the financial crisis, the importance of, of recognizing the negatives of leverage, the negatives of having not having a, a margin of safety, a cushion for making sure you're, you're protected so you don't have long-term commitments in your personal life funded with short-term funding sources, a paycheck from week to week. Recognizing diversification doesn't always work. Sometimes things all collapse at the same time. And if you have a higher return objective, the likelihood of a negative, unexpected event is much greater. How I invest changed after the great financial crisis. I am much more aware of market internals, the the level momentum trends, fear and greed in the market. I'm much more aware of economic trends. I continue to rely on valuation, but those are the market conditions that I look at on an ongoing but formally monthly basis. That's what I share on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. I use that information to invest on the leading edge of the present. A number of those quotes there, I I talk about how difficult it is to time the market in the short term. But over the intermediate to long term, it it isn't market timing, it's risk management, adjusting risk for both opportunities, but also potential negative surprises or negative trends. And so that's what we do on the Money for the Rest of Us Hub. You can get more information on that at moneyfortherestofushub.com. Show notes for this episode can be found at moneyfortherestofus.net. That's awesome. You can sign up for my insider's guide where I'll email those show notes to you weekly for free. I include a summary article of that week's episode and other valuable content. If it's easier for you, you can go ahead and sign up for that insider's guide by texting the word INSIDER to the number 44222. That works only for U.S.-based listeners. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education only. I've not considered your specific risk profile. I've not provided investment advice. This is simply general education on money, investing in the economy. This was a much longer episode this week. I won't be typically do that, but the, the, the topic was complex, deep enough that I just, I just wanted to get it done. And so it looks like we've gone about almost an hour, 53 minutes. So have a great week.